Hello, Central Oregonians. You're listening to Curiosity Lab. I am Adam Bram, and today I have a special guest, Dr. Chopra, and we're going to be talking about psilocybin research and treatment. And I'm excited to to dive into all kinds of stuff. Dr. Chopra, thank you for joining me today. Hey, thanks for the invite. It's a pleasure. I'm glad to share some knowledge with the community. Yes, this is such a, an interesting topic. Uh, it's funny because, you know, you think 10 years ago, we never thought we'd not only be able to talk about this openly uh, on the airwaves, but also that, uh, you know, there'd be decriminalization and there's a lot of movement happening. And I think it's really spreading across uh, the, the globe, really, and across, of course, across country in acceptance and, and understanding that there's something there that it doesn't need to be something that's uh, t- so taboo. So um, really, I'm really curious, too, about your background and, and, and that you've really since, uh, I guess, was it 15, 10, 15 years ago in L.A.? At, yeah, uh, since 2000, back in 2002. 2002, yeah, wow. And that was at L.A. Harbor at UCLA? Yes. Very cool. And that was uh, uh, terminal cancer patients and, and trials? Yeah, so when I was a, 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 a medical intern and resident uh, uh, back in 2001 and 2002, I attended a lecture uh, about substance abuse. And, uh, you know, going back to that time as an intern, you don't have a lot of sleep. So I was kind of dozing off in this lecture when the, uh, the professor uh, switched the topic in the middle of a substance abuse lecture uh, to discuss the therapeutic potential of psychedelic medicines. So, of course, I kind of woke up and he went on to describe a trial he had done uh, for terminal cancer with MDMA, you know, commonly known mm-hmm. as ecstasy or Adam. And uh, after that, I introduced myself to Dr. Grow when I, I told him I'd be happy to volunteer on some uh, future studies. So about a year later, um, he received approval to do a, uh, one of the first studies uh, with psilocybin, actually the first psilocybin study with uh, end of life. Um, uh, and so uh, he invited me to be a co-investigator, a co-therapist, because he needed another physician. Uh, because at that time, for any kind of uh, psilocybin trial, uh, it required an inpatient admission. Because these were considered safety and feasibility studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the government, the FDA, uh, the DEA considered them dangerous substances, Schedule One, which uh, is the government's way of saying there is no medicinal purpose uh, for an entire class of medicines. And psilocybin is, is itself scheduled as scheduled one, but also any type of uh, hallucinogenic or psychedelic medicine is automatically uh, schedule one due to the uh, the Federal Analog Act, which I can tell you about if you're interested. Well, definitely. I mean, we could have a whole another uh, whole hour show specifically on the reasons why that that is the uh, way it is. Uh, but it is changing, and it's got to come from the other side of the door. It's got to come from the public. It's got to come from specialists and people doing the research that that understand it or kind of pushing the envelope because I don't see that lifting and, and changing dramatically uh, from the governmental side. So uh, it's unfortunate, but at the same time, we've, we've made a, a, absolute strides, I feel like, especially in the last uh, decade. So, uh, but I'm, I'm really curious about uh, how, how far you were able to get into really understanding and, and some of these trials specific to cancer patients and end of life. Because to me, I know the, 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 out-of-body experience to uh, near death and, and some of those those deeper, uh, more esoteric areas kind of 
still dovetail, and I think it's important that we do a lot of that research, but it's got to start with terminal things where it's right in our face and really is an important part uh, of people uh, in their transition out of death. So yeah, tell me a little bit more about uh, the cancer trials that you understood that were really effective and, and where do you think it's going? Yeah, so I think at this point, um, <clears throat> there's been maybe four or even five studies in the United States. Ours was the first study. It was down in Los Angeles at a county hospital called Harbor UCLA. It's a county hospital that's staffed by UCLA professors and fellows and residents. So we were given permission uh, to treat uh, 12 patients with terminal cancer uh, with psilocybin, a moderate dose. Um, and uh, it was quite remarkable for almost everybody. You know, uh, part of the process obviously is the psychedelic or hallucinogenic session. Uh, the goal we had of, of using the, the psilocybin was to create a, a, a mystical experience, uh, an opportunity for someone to go deeply within, maybe examine some uh, life uh, experiences that were contributing to their current dilemma, but really trying to get even deeper to try to understand um, how they could uh, move forward with with this very important tradition. Um, in a lot of ways, uh, this work is inspired by some previous researchers from the 50s and 60s. There was uh, quite a lot of uh, psychedelic research back then. But what I like to remind myself and help us all remember is that uh, we probably co-evolved with psychedelic plants and medicines. I mean, I can imagine that uh, psilocybin-containing mushrooms were there uh, for our earliest ancestors to forge. So in the reality, this predates even shamanic traditions, which mm. are somewhat popular in resurgence right now, which I think are certainly wonderful ways of uh, catalyzing the healing potential of psychedelics. But in the reality... Um, uh, uh, plant medicines have their own ability to catalyze mystical experiences, mm -hmm. which can lead to healing, which is what we looked at in this study, um, but also uh, probably led to the development of language, art, dance, music, rhythm. Um, they're very, very powerful. So um, the subjects in our study uh, did fairly well. Um, unfortunately, being the first study that was approved, uh, we were not allowed to give the dose that we thought was adequate. It was a dose of 0.2 milligrams per kilogram. Mm. That's not really a fancy thing, but many people who understand psilocybin dosing uh, can recognize that's more of a moderate dose. Mm -hmm. uh, that said, since uh, people were fairly frail, uh, they were quite uh, quite a lot more sensitive, you know, uh, uh, at this stage uh, of their life, you know, since they did have a pretty or really very severe uh, cancer. Um, the, the diagnosis required a less than 12 months life expectancy. Mm. I also want to remember just to thank and honor all the participants of the study. Um, we may not get into all the details of the study, but since every participant uh, served as their own placebo, each participant came in over two weekends uh, for the study. So they volunteered and contributed two of their last weekends. So, you know, I, I think it's really important to remember that these uh, more recent ancestors have uh, did quite a lot to allow us to speak about that. Now, after that study, uh, there were studies repeated at NYU. Uh, in New York City, they did one or two studies uh, with psilocybin for end of life. And then there were studies also at Johns Hopkins University. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the last 15 years, I haven't been in research, so I don't have every paper uh, in my mind. But at this point, there have been enough studies that have been recognized by the DEA and the FDA that the federal government is actually reconsidering the classification of psilocybin. Uh, it's very likely that psilocybin will be scheduled down, maybe either descheduled or scheduled down to... Um, class four. Um, so I would suspect that psilocybin will be available as a prescription uh, in 2024. 
Now, there's a lot of baggage with that, obviously, since uh, psilocybin is extracted from a plant that occurs mm-hmm. naturally. I mean, literally, psilocybin, cubensis mushrooms pop up on grass lawns. You know, mm-hmm. uh, in the 60s, people would joke that these mushrooms are, are growing in the lawns in front of the courthouse while people are going to jail for consuming them. So, you know, as you said, our culture is still catching, catching up with this. Fortunately, there's been a lot of dedicated scientists uh, who have uh, shown uh, in a scientific and kind of a Western dualistic reductionistic uh, manner that these medicines really help. And that's kind of what the purpose of that paper I was involved with. It's a, it's a very, very solid research paper. It doesn't get too much into the mystical. It's really taking a look at how do these people feel afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the fascinating things is is there's a lot of talk, I think, especially in Portland or, or in, in our region of the country, that there will be this legalization that will just have it recreationally available. Um, I've been kind of on the fence myself where I think there's still, just like uh, cannabis, CBD, and cannabinoid research and study, there's still a lot left to learn and for us to really break through and to have complete legalization without fully understanding uh, the mind itself and then the effects and, and understanding energetically through that uh, but do you see a do you predict that we'll at least have more of a clinical medical uh, license type of uh, environment uh, based on this rescheduling or do you kind of see maybe in this region it shifting to really a, a, a full recreational availability yeah that's a really a good point you're making up there's actually two processes uh, involved for people in Oregon uh, because Oregon uh, passed a measure that's allowing uh, the use of psilocybin in a therapeutic uh, manner in, uh, in in licensed centers with licensed practitioners. Um, I was not involved uh, in this measure. I've been doing some research about it and I actually met several members of the state advisory panel. I will say that they're uh, very wise, very uh, solid scientists, mycologists, policy people, um, that the psychiatrist on the program is a real expert in receptor mechanisms. I, I'm familiar with his work uh, uh, that, that he's been doing for 20 years. So these are real experts getting involved. So they are setting up a, a plan and to, to do it in a somewhat regulated uh, fashion with uh, uh, psilocybin that is uh, um, drawn from psilocybin cubensis farms. I think at some level it is analogous to the medical marijuana movement. Uh, I think that's one option that's going to happen. You know, I personally feel that decriminalization is, is really uh, important to consider since this is just a natural, uh, a natural occurring element. You know, I think... Uh, uh, it's growing everywhere anyhow, and there's you know several hundred uh, species of psilocybin-containing mushrooms. However, if this regulated manner allows some more people to access it, I'm hoping that'll happen. You know, I do have some concerns uh, about uh, some of these therapeutic centers. I don't see how they would uh, be available to non-English speakers. I don't see how mm. they'd be available to people with terminal cancer. I don't see how they would be able to provide medical support to people who aren't you know, uh, totally uh, healthy. So, you know, as a, someone who's researched this medicine and actually utilized it in the context of a study for people who are medically frail, um, I don't think it's going to step up for, for those types of people where it's very important. However, you know, it is a good first step. And again, the, uh, the, the, the advisory board that the state of Oregon has put together is stellar. I mean, it is a great group of people. They're aware of all these uh, issues. They're very, very thoughtful. So I think what's probably going to happen is we may start using psilocybin in a therapeutic manner, you know, under this kind of uh, box of Measure 109 in Oregon. 
And in the meantime, there'll be this parallel process where psilocybin, some sort of synthetic psilocybin will be available to be prescribed by physicians. Um, but still, to me, I do believe in de decriminalization so everyone can have access to them. And certainly uh, indigenous folks, native healers, uh, are always going to be more comfortable plucking the mushroom you know, from the forest and the fields where it's provided by nature. And isn't Oregon on the, uh, one of the foremost you know, proponents and, and, uh, and regions that are really kind of diving into this? And, and Yeah, so Oregon jumped ahead. There also is a measure, and I think the governor is involved in passing a measure for psilocybin and MDMA in the state of Connecticut. And I believe there's a strong movement in Texas. So uh, the federal government is being nudged along by a lot of advocates uh, uh, for veterans. So there are numerous combat veterans who have benefited from psychedelic therapy offshore or underground, and many of them have stepped forward, even some leadership. So there's a big push uh, to allow access to psychedelic treatments because uh, the government and uh, veterans recognize that it does allow for a sort of healing that is not available with the uh, mainstream treatments that the uh, Veterans Administration, private practice, therapists and psychiatrists, and the public mental health uh, sphere offers. So, you know, I mentioned the kind of federal push. A lot of that support is coming from advocates for um, you know, war veterans, mm -hmm. uh, veterans with PTSD traumas. Absolutely. So I think um, it's like you said, when the community asks for something, maybe the universe will respond. So I'm cautious about that. Um, I will say that uh, I've heard from other researchers that MDMA is likely to be rescheduled in 2023. And that's along with like ketamine as well. Ketamine right? is already um, is is a usable medicine. It is so ketamine can be administered IV in an infusion clinic, mm -hmm. and there's also an inhaled version of ketamine. Yeah. Ketamine has been approved as a medicine for all time. It was always been class four, because it's used as a anesthetic medicine primarily for uh, in veterinary. Uh, patients and also for children. Adults uh, can have a lot of uh, flashbacks mm. similar to PCP when they're given long doses of ketamine. Mm. That's why it's no longer used for anesthesia. It can be helpful for mm. an induction. Mm. However, there are ketamine clinics all over the United States right mm -hmm. now mm -hmm. uh, where you can seek treatment. The primary indication uh, that the FDA recognizes for ketamine is depression. However, it has been uh, fairly successful for people with characterological disorders and other substance abuse disorders. Mm -hmm. um, so ketamine already is uh, an, an available treatment. And there's not clinics that can do multiple treatments like this. It's usually specific to the type of treatments, right? There's not like a, a license you can get for multiple type of psilocybin or ketamine or ecstasy. It's really segmented still, correct? Yeah, so there is no... There is no clinic in the United States you can access psilocybin or MDMA outside of a, a, a research trial. So all my experience using psilocybin was a government-sanctioned research protocol. Mm -hmm. And when I'm referring to uh, other patients who've been treated that have led to the FDA considering their uh, reclassification, those all occurred at NYU, Johns Hopkins, UCLA uh, as a research protocol. Ketamine, however, has been an approved medicine for many years. So ketamine can be uh, prescribed as a nasal inhalant by any, any prescriber. So that could be a psychiatrist, a physician, a nurse practitioner. And IV ketamine uh, can be uh, utilized and infused in any sort of outpatient clinic where the practitioner has the expertise in order to administer an IV. Mm. Um, it does not require a special uh, license to do that beyond a, a medical license. I'm not sure about license requirements beyond physicians, but uh, theoretically, um, a physician can open a ketamine clinic 
uh, right now from my uh, from, from from my understanding um, because it is a uh, prescribable medicine. So when I speak about 20, 2023 and 2024, at, at that point, MDMA will be prescribed. We're yet to see if there'll be any kind of uh, caveats in terms of uh, the location or, or uh, sites of administration. And the same thing with psilocybin. And bringing it back to Oregon here, Measure 109, my understanding is that uh, psilocybin will be administered by a licensed uh, psilocybin facilitator and that the uh, participant uh, must be under their direct care in a licensed uh, some sort of facility for at least four to six hours. However, uh, I asked some questions about that, and I think depending on the dose, there'll be a different amount of time of facilitation. Mm. Um, you know, I think, uh, I'm, I'm glad we're getting to facilitation. I think facilitation is a very important aspect to any kind of psychedelic work. It's something I've been talking about in some other settings, so um, something maybe we can discuss at a, at a future date. So there is some rationale uh, why... Um, the state or even any kind of provider would say, hey, listen, let's make sure there's some sort of facilitation, some guidance, um, having a sitter during a psychedelic experience. So mm-hmm. there, there's reasons for that. Um, and there's sitters really for uh, even these experiments and trials and research. Yes. It's just, I've seen in the documentaries, there's, there's plenty of out there, uh, out there that, that, that kind of go into this. There's always a sitter, somebody that sits with you. And, yes. And, and I'm, I'm always very curious, um, especially with the psilocybin uh, uh, trials that they've, they've used either with the end of life. I know that I believe it's uh, the um, the show on Netflix, uh, Fantastic Fungi, I think they might touch on it, but it is important to not just to have somebody's presence, but to have the, the, the touch, the holding of the hand and that presence because I think the biggest challenge for people that could be sensitive or uh, that are new to this, it's the fear. It's that it's, it's almost like the, the death molecule or the death experience is that fear that you need to break through. And I think that's one of the things that makes it so powerful, right, is that breakthrough mm-hmm. that you have, that, that there's something more and that so that's something that's so important when you're grappling with the end of life. Yeah, I think it's it's really an important point you're bringing up. You know, we're dealing with the ineffable here. So uh, psilocybin defies Western uh, categorization and, and reductionistic science. So the sitter is arguably the most important uh, ingredient to a psychedelic trip beyond what the person brings to it. And the psilocybin is just kind of the key to that. So, um, you know, I, I've done a couple of uh, talks recently around here trying to share some information. I spent a great deal of time uh, discussing facilitation and sitting. I think it's an, a very, very important aspect. Um, for example, in our study, we had three of us sitting bedside the entire six-hour experience beyond little uh, bathroom breaks. So at the minimum, there was two of us at each time. And we always made sure we had a person of each gender to kind of balance energies. Mm. Um, so, um, you know, it's it's very, very important aspect. We should talk about that sometime. Yeah, definitely. I, I feel like this is going to be uh, chapter one of, of sure. this multi-series because I, I, this stuff is so fascinating. I know there's a lot of people very interested and it's a very profound subject that has been really needed to be brought out and discussed more in the open for many years. And, you know, here we are. So we have to be very thankful that we have this opportunity but we're going to go quickly to a break we're going to listen to a little song here uh, by A Day in the Life which is a Beatles cover by Easy Star All Stars and we'll be right back with Dr. Chopra I read the news today 
You're listening to Curiosity Lab. I'm your host, Adam Bram. You just heard Easy Star All-Stars. I saw them live at uh, Copper Mountain in Colorado a number of years ago. That was uh, They're a great group. I'm here with, with Dr. Chopra. We're talking about psilocybin treatment and all, all the good stuff. I mean, we could really go on for this for, for many, many hours. But uh, I'd like to quickly, before we end the show today, I'd like to talk about your podcast. I, I know I have it's on my list to listen to. I know that you put a lot of time and effort into it. I'm really excited that, that you've gotten that going. So tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, what spawned that and, and where it's at and where you like to take it. Well, what I noticed uh, with all this discussion of uh, Measure 109 in Oregon and these Netflix specials and other media about psilocybin, it, it tended to be a, a very homogenous group of people talking about it. A bunch of 50 and 60-year-old men, maybe an occasional woman, nobody of color, nobody of a different ethnicity, nobody of a different culture, certainly no one from the indigenous background, you know, no one who has a direct uh, route to the ancestors. And that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. And I was talking to people and people say, you should start talking about it. So I, I spoke at our local mushroom club back in September, did a talk about psychedelic therapy, uh, particularly uh, psilocybin. And then I also uh, put together a panel with a mycologist and a retired chemist at the uh, Fungi Fest. And as I was speaking more and more about this, I really realized that I wanted people to remember that this is a, kind of a return to our ancestral roots at, at a broader level. So that kind of spawned me to share the information. Um, so I said, okay, let me try to do a podcast. So this first uh, episode I put out on my podcast, it's called the... Um, The podcast is called The Psychedelic Method of Therapy. It's available on all the streaming services. You can find it by my name, uh, Dr. Kupri Chopra. My first uh, episode is actually an excerpt from the panel I put together at the Fungi Fest. You know, I did the introduction, so I kept some of that. And then I go through the psychedelic method of psychotherapy, which is the method uh, that we used in our study. It's the method that was used in essentially every uh, psychedelic study um, across America. And I didn't make this method. This is the method I was taught by uh, Dr. Grobe, and it's informed by uh, researchers from the 50s and 60s who were informed by indigenous healers. So in this, we talk about a facilitation. We talk about how to best catalyze a mystical experience, how to navigate the different levels of a mystical experience. Because as I think Adam mentioned, either on air or off air, part of the work is uh, confronting the shadow integrating parts of the self that are fractured or somewhat difficult to process because these can be blockages for us to uh, for us manifesting our higher self ultimately um, I feel psychedelics are very helpful because they allow us to discover divinity within another word for psychedelic or hallucinogen is entheogen which really means the God within I, I prefer that word over these other words because I don't think it's about the mind and I don't think it's about hallucinations I think it's really about revealing the the powerful creative a universal force and inside all of us. And as more of us have these experiences in healthy, safe manners, and we're able to integrate it back into our everyday reality, we'll all become more comfortable with non-ordinary, non-ordinary levels of consciousness. And ultimately, we'll be, we'll be more comfortable with our regular level of consciousness. And I think we'll all get along better. I think that is the, the kind of fantasy of a psychedelic rollout. However, um, psychedelics or entheogens have been available for centuries. And here we are still talking about the science behind how we can use them to open our heart. So I, I, th- I think our culture, particularly Western uh, modern culture, has a lot to learn. So I want to be a voice in the movement of uh, bringing us uh, back to that broader kind of indigenous perspective, kind of yeah. remembering where we came from. 